Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 126 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm heading to Vegas today, so doing from the airport at O'Hare ahead of travel. So if you hear some background noise, it's my friends at the Admiral's Lounge. Three cases again today. Our first case is from the Illinois Supreme Court, Gibbons versus City of Chicago. Our second case today is from the United States Supreme Court, Mallory versus Norfolk Southern Railway, an important case on personal jurisdiction. And our third case today is from the Indiana Appellate Court, a case of first impression involving surety bonds and duties of good faith, posterity scholar house versus FCCI insurance company. Let's turn to our first case. Can the city of Chicago be liable for the injuries to three burglars, including the death of one who were robbing a store and when ordered by the police to come out, they ran their car into the police, whereupon the police fired 76 shots into the vehicle. The two surviving plaintiffs were convicted of first-degree felony murder, aggravated battery of a peace officer, burglary, and possession of a stolen vehicle. At the subsequent civil proceeding, summary judgment was entered in favor of the city. As to the two plaintiffs who survived, and as to the third who died, his estate's claim went to trial where the jury awarded $1,999,998, reduced by 50% but then granted judgment to the city as a result of answers to two special interrogatories that were found by the trial court to control the general verdict. All three plaintiffs appealed, and the appellate court reversed the grant of summary judgment and reinstated the jury verdict as the third finding that the special interrogatories were defective. The city's petition for leave to appeal to the Illinois Supreme Court was granted, and oral argument was heard recently. The city argued that summary judgment had been properly granted on the basis of collateral estoppel, that the two plaintiffs who had survived were the proximate cause of the officer's use of force, and that their criminal convictions otherwise barred their claims. As to the special interrogatories, the city asserted that the plaintiff forfeited the objection, and that the appellate court, which noted that forfeiture was a limitation on the parties, not the court, erred in finding that they were fatally flawed. The decision will address complex issues of collateral estoppel as to the plaintiffs and willful and wanton misconduct going both directions. Pat, tell us about oral argument. So, thanks, Dan. And this is a really, really complex case. Uh, and we're not going to be able to really do it justice here. Uh, if you're interested in the issues, I would commend the oral argument and the briefs to you. But the basic idea is this. Here we go. So the these the, we have to split the defend the plaintiffs into two categories. We have the the defend the, those claimants who survived and who were convicted of felony murder. For those that aren't familiar with what felony murder is, that is if Dan and I decide to go to a bank and rob it, and the security guard shoots Dan in the course of that robbery, then I am liable for Dan's death because I was engaged in one of five felonies. At common law, there were five felonies that if you were engaged in and one of your partners or somebody else is killed as a result of your conduct, criminal conduct, that 
you are uh, liable for that murder as if you did it yourself. So those would be rape, arson, kidnapping, burglary, and robbery would be the five at common law. Uh, and most states have codified that. Illinois has. And these two fellows were convicted of the felony murder of their accomplice, even though they didn't kill him directly, the, uh, the police officers did. So we've got them. And so the question is, are, is, can you use this, what amounts to offensive collateral estoppel against them? Or maybe it's defensive. I can't tell. <laughs> use collateral estoppel in any event to, to, get at, to get at their claims and bar their claims with regards to the proximate cause for the death of the third person. Appellate, or trial court held that they could. The appellate court held that they couldn't. But the other interesting part about this is what does that say about, or what does that bear on the separate issue of the willful and wanton misconduct of the police? Now, in order to get at the police under the Tort Immunity Act, mere negligence is insufficient. You have to show willful and wanton misconduct by the police. And are the 76 shots into the vehicle by itself? And a number of other things. They alleged 11, I think, different uh, claims of negligent or conduct, willful and wanton conduct by the police. They did. Yeah. Uh, and, and the police, their position is, hold it. Not only did they fail to obey and didn't stop, they actually hit at least one of the officers, I believe, and perhaps others. Uh, and so that's where they had the uh, aggravated assault of a peace officer was one of the charges for the guys who, who lived. So there's this interaction between uh, what willful and wanton conduct is and how you define it and who does it apply to. Because there's, as Dan said, there, it goes, it's going in both directions, this willful and wanton misconduct. So then you have the, 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 the estate of the deceased. Obviously, because he died, no criminal, they couldn't try him. <laughs> so... His case kind of stood alone um, and puts him in a different position. The jury awards nearly $2 million. It's reduced by 50%. I don't know where they came up with the number. I don't know where they came up with the 50%, but whatever. That's that's verdict doesn't stand, though, because of special interrogatories. And this is going to be one of the last cases that deals with real special interrogatories based upon the change that was made to those following this case. Um, and you've written so about that extensively. That, that's... I have written about that extensively, and this is one of the cases where it was one of the reasons why they brought that change was to deal with this particular situation. Um, so the, the court, trial court issued these special interrogatories, three of them. Two of them were answered in the city's favor. The third was not, but the two that were answered controlled. Now, counsel for the plaintiff uh, argued that they needed to have issued multiple interrogatories for each of the police officers that was present and they only issued three. She said, I think she said 95. It was like a, a Martin Luther's 95 theses. You needed to have 95 special interrogatories uh, to get to these issues. And I, I didn't quite understand that argument. I'm not sure the court did either. Um, but the idea, and but their point was, is that these special interrogatories were compound uh, they, they, you could, if you answered them, yes, which question were you answering? Yes. To, they built a lot of things in there. They, this kind of a thing, the, that's what the appellate court held that the special interrogatories were, were defective and therefore they couldn't control. There is an argument about whether that was forfeited. The appellate court 
held that, yes, it was forfeited, but it's not a limitation by us. And oh, by the way, it affects other issues. And oh, by the way, it's an issue of first impression. So we're going to go deal with it. Um, I, I wrote about this forfeiture issue the other day. I, I, I don't understand. Forfeited is forfeited. I, 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 just, I just don't get this. Agree. Um, you know, make your record. We've all made mistakes in not making our record. Okay, it, this happens. I, I, I'm, I, you know, I've done it. Um, I, you know, I've done it at trial. Uh, you try to correct the record. You try to fix it. I was able to, the most recent example of a case where I had that happen, I fixed it. But it, it's, um, you, you can't, if it's forfeited, then it's forfeited. Uh, what, what are we doing here? Uh, but they reached the issue and then they reversed. So I, I'm really looking forward to this opinion. As I said, we really can't do justice to this case, but the idea that three, two of whom are, so three criminals. I mean, I don't think there's any other way to, any other way to couch them. I don't think I'm, I'm saying anything. Three criminals sue the city for getting shot by the police as they tried to run over the police. Right. Um, and in fact, hit at least one of the police officers while committing a felony and they get to sue. I, I, I'm really struggling with how that can be a thing. You're, I mean, welcome to America. If, it's a different thing <laughs> that if, yeah, well, it's a different <laughs> thing that if the police officers had taken the guys back to the station and beat them with a phone book and a wet noodle. Well, that's a different, that's a whole different situation than at the scene. They're trying to stop these guys who are speeding away. They, you know, this kind of a thing. Uh, those are two different situations. No one's condoning uh, or excusing uh, police brutality, or, or but I don't think the mere number of shots gets gets you where you're going because they apparently they shot until the vehicle stopped. Now, whether that's true or not, I, I, I don't know. Maybe there were a couple extras, you know, that this could happen. Um, certainly examples here in Chicago of that having occurred. Laquan McDonald, for example, comes to mind. Um, uh, where you look and you go, 16 shots, really? And that was long after he was, no. the threat had ceased. Um, to the extent there was ever a threat at all, uh, which we can certainly argue about in that circum- in that in that particular case. Uh, so I, I really uh, I, I struggle with how this case can stand. Um, it'll be very interested to see the reasoning of the court on the willful and wanton misconduct stuff. Uh, Dan, what are your thoughts on this case? I agree with you, Pat. Very interesting. And I, I don't know if I mentioned it on this podcast previously. My dad was a Chicago police officer and was involved in one uh, fatal shooting and uh, was sued by the, the estate. And uh, his first first shot killed the person. Uh, and he was asked why he you know, unloaded the full six bullets from his gun. And uh, his, his response was, you know, it's not like the movies. You don't take a pulse. It's the heat of the moment. And it was in with the microseconds. So you have to, you know, the, you're, you're serve and protect, right? So um, like you said, the number of bullets alone here doesn't seem like it should be the decisive factor. And uh, so it'd be interesting to see what the reason is. I, I agree with you. I don't think it can stand. But it would be interesting to see what the court's, opinion, you know, what, what they decide. Very complex case, as you said, not, not able to really do justice in a 10 or 11 minute segment of the show. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with Mallory versus Norfolk Southern Railway, a case heard recently by the United States Supreme Court.
we're back for segment two of episode 126 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And is there personal jurisdiction over a defendant in Pennsylvania that is not headquartered there and where the plaintiff neither resides nor was injured? Uh, we'll hear the term a, uh, a, a difference between a cubed case and a squared case. This is a, cu- this is a, a cubed case. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later. This is the question that the Supreme Court of the United States will answer when it decides Mallory versus Norfolk Southern Railway. The question presented is whether the Due Process Clause, the 14th Amendment, prohibits a state from requiring a corporation corporation to consent to personal jurisdiction to do business in the state. Norfolk Southern is a Virginia corporation, and the plaintiff is a Virginia resident who worked for Norfolk Southern in Virginia and Ohio. He developed colon cancer and sued Norfolk Southern. Pennsylvania requires all businesses who do business in the state to register in the relevant Pennsylvania statute, Section 5301A, provides as follows. A, general rule, the existence of any following relationships between a person and this commonwealth shall constitute a sufficient basis of jurisdiction to exercise general personal jurisdiction over such person. 2I, corporations that are qualified as foreign corporations under the laws of this commonwealth. In other words, once a corporation registered to to do business in Pennsylvania, it can be sued for any reason as if it were at home in Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court affirmed the trial court's dismissal based upon lack of personal jurisdiction, and the petition for writ of certiorari was granted. Pennsylvania is the only state that currently has a statute like this. The only issue raised is whether Norfolk Southern has consented to jurisdiction, which raises an unconstitutional conditions issue, but there is also a significant dormant commerce clause issue that was not briefed and could be raised on remand. And it's kind of lurking out there. We'll talk about that. If this statute stands, it could lead to the effective elimination of personal jurisdiction for corporations as states could pass similar statutes. The balkanization of the economy that could occur uh, as a result could lead companies to avoid litigation in certain jurisdictions would be quite harmful to the economy. Dan, uh, tell us about uh, the oral argument. Sure, Pat. And uh, a couple of things. One is, is we've talked about this a little bit, but... One of the things that's changed in the modern era, uh, prior to COVID, Chief Justice John Roberts was pretty religious about oral arguments, being 60 minutes per case, half a petitioner, half a respondent. During COVID, the process of questioning changed. It went by seniority with Roberts first, then Thomas. Thomas started asking questions. Now during post-COVID, he continues to do so and takes the lead, usually in the uh, the, the free-for-all portion. Uh, this argument weighed in at just under two hours and more than 125 pages of transcripts. And so a lot to cover here, uh, as, as we talked about before we got on uh, this morning. Uh, in early November, this was on election day, the Supreme Court heard this case. And, it, and as Pat said, it was a challenge to a Pennsylvania law that allows any company doing business in the state to be sued there, even if the corporation is not headquartered there and the conduct at the center of the lawsuit occurred somewhere else. During nearly two hours of oral arguments, the justices were divided, uh, it seemed, and not necessarily along ide- ideological lines whether to uphold the law. Some justices appeared concerned that upholding the law could open the floodgates to lawsuits against corporations wherever they do business. As you noted, Pat, while there's worry that a ruling that strikes down the law would provide better treatment for corporations than individuals. Uh, for lawyers, we're all exposed to personal jurisdiction, and we've covered that issue on previous episodes of the Podium and Panel podcast. But for those not familiar generally, we have two types of personal jurisdiction. The first is known as general jurisdiction, allowing a plaintiff to sue a company in the state where the company is incorporated or the state that constitutes its principal place of business, even when the conduct given rise to the lawsuit occurred. 
in another state. Principal place of business is not always straightforward, but can be identified in most instances. For example, many companies are incorporated in Delaware, but have offices or headquarters in other locations. The second type of, type of jurisdiction is known as specific jurisdiction, which allows a lawsuit in a particular state if the company engaged in activities there that are connected to the lawsuit. A defendant can also agree to submit to jurisdiction in the state, even if there won't otherwise be jurisdiction there. Uh, as Pat mentioned, the plaintiff here worked for Nor Norfolk Southern, a Virginia-based railroad in Virginia and Ohio. When Mallory was diagnosed with colon cancer, he filed a lawsuit in Pennsylvania State Court against Norfolk Southern, arguing that he had been exposed to toxic chemicals on the job. Under Pennsylvania law, Norfolk Southern was required to register with the state so they could do business there under state law. That registration gives Pennsylvania courts general jurisdiction over those corporations. And Norfolk Southern argues, and the lower courts agreed, that the Pennsylvania scheme violates the 14th Amendment's due process clause, which guarantees fair treatment by the government by giving state courts jurisdiction over out-of-state corporations in all circumstances. At oral argument, Mallory's lawyer discussed the long history of consent by registration laws. By 1868, when the 14th Amendment was ratified, he said, quote, every state in the union had at least one and often several, quote, in quote, such laws, which means that Pennsylvania's law is consistent with how the amendment would have been commonly understood when it was adopted. That was his argument. Uh, some justices pushed back against Mallory's efforts to rely on the history of consent laws and the case Pennsylvania Fire Insurance Company of Philadelphia versus Gold Issue Mining and Milling Company, a decision holding that an out-of-state corporation had agreed to jurisdiction in Missouri when as required by state law, it appointed, it appointed an agent to accept the legal papers that initiated the lawsuit. Chief Justice John Roberts told Keller that history and tradition move on, and he suggested that the Supreme Court's 1945 decision in International Shoe Company versus Washington holding that a state can have specific jurisdiction over an out-of-state defendant when the defendant has sufficient context with the state, that it would not be unfair for the defendant to face a lawsuit there. And Roberts asked, does an international shoe sort of relegate that body of cases to the dustbin of history? Uh, Keller responded, the Supreme Court has never actually overruled this decision in Pennsylvania fire. Uh, it seemed like Justice Elena Kagan was skeptical of his efforts to rely on that decision. On history of such laws, uh, Justice Hitanji Brown-Jackson seemed more sympathetic to Mallory. Uh, a very interesting argument. I, I want to turn it back to you, Pat, to talk about some of the uh, briefs and some of the questions of why uh, he chose Pennsylvania in the first place and, and some of that things. But a very, again, a very uh, packed, uh, almost two hours of, of constitutional law and uh, a, a, a very important issue, as Pat said in terms of personal jurisdiction and, and how that might open the floodgates. In, in, indeed, Dan. And so why don't we start with this idea? Uh, this opinion, I'm going to start at the end. The opinion is going to yield a very strange lineup. Justices Jackson and Sotomayor are playing, and Sotomayor has written this. She, she did not agree with the court in the Daimler case about the at-home stuff. She doesn't right. buy all that. So she's already on record right. on there. We're not really sure where Jackson stands. But Gorsuch and Thomas seem to be in the in line with where Sotomayor and Jackson are with regards to what the 14th Amendment says. On the other side, you have Justices Kagan, Roberts, 
and Kavanaugh very much in the camp of, well, the history changes. I, I really, I, I'm kind of confused by that. And Kavanaugh in particular on the Dormant Commerce Clause stuff, but the Dormant Commerce Clause stuff we'll, we'll come to. So that leaves us with Alito, who almost always will do, will, will side with business. And he seemed to be squarely on the camp of this is not consent and this isn't a thing. Kagan also expressed uh, questions about whether they had actually consented to anything, which leaves us with one justice who's going to decide this case, I think. That's going to be Justice Barry. Right. She asked a lot of questions about the history. What's really interesting about this case is how it got briefed. In the arguments below, they didn't make this full-throated or any originalist argument. They hired new lawyers at the search stage who made an originalist argument. That's they are going to go get their goal is to go get Thomas, go get Gorsuch. They've already got Jackson and Sotomayor. They knew that. I think they probably thought they had Kagan. They don't. Um, and but the original it's going to make it difficult for Alito, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. They only got to peel off, I think, one of them, and they might do it. It depends how you read these statutes. The argument from the from the uh, from the the argument from the corporation is they are specific jurisdiction statutes to which the plaintiff says, hold it. The, the, the distinction between specific and general jurisdiction is a, is a modern invention. It didn't exist then. That isn't how it worked then. What are you talking about? Um, and then you have this long-held uh, idea of tag jurisdiction from Burnham. And you had a, a good discussion or back and forth between Justices Gorsuch and Alito regarding, well, how do you, if you can tag someone wherever they are, Burnham's still good law, and to which the corp, Norfolk Southern says, yeah, that's that's always been the case. If you find him in the jurisdiction, you find him in the airport, Dan can, Dan, you know, if he was in the Vegas airport, he's now subject to personal jurisdiction, general personal jurisdiction in Vegas when he gets there, and he gets tagged there. He's always subject to general personal jurisdiction here in Illinois because that's where he lives. But the Alito said, hold it, how could a corporation be in all 50 states at the same time. That seems kind of ridiculous, which comes to the, this idea of you treat corporations and individuals the same, they aren't the same, yada, yada. Boy, we haven't even scratched the surface. So uh, <laughs> we have not. I want to explain more about this, this cubed and squared thing. So cubed is where the plaintiff isn't a resident of the forum jurisdiction, the accident didn't occur there, and the defendant isn't located there, all three don't exist in the state. So this is a cubed case. Then you have the then you have the squared cases. That's a case where the plaintiff lives there, but the defendant doesn't live isn't there and the act and the incident didn't occur there, which is something like the Bristol Myers squib case from a couple of years ago which didn't come up I don't think at all or maybe in passing, which was kind of interesting being the most recent case on this issue. I, I don't think it came up. It didn't really come up. I, I don't recall it coming up. Yeah. So then you have, as Dan mentioned, the Pennsylvania fire case from 1917. Was it overruled by the 1945 international shoe case, which kind of changed the, the, the rejected the Pinoyer versus Neff stuff and set, reset the paradigm for how we do personal jurisdiction. It didn't specifically overrule Pennsylvania fire international shoe, but did it, did it implicitly overrule it? Because it has been said that, you know, everything of the, of the Panora era is garbage. We're going forward on this international shoe 
balancing test nonsense. Um, so we, we then come to, okay, let's suppose you're right. Let's suppose we, you can do this. Is it an unconstitutional condition to make a corporation do this? In other words, do you have the, do you, do you have a constitutional right not to be sued where you aren't? And can they hold a gun to your head, which was the example that the, that the corporate, that Northrop Southern's lawyer gave, can you hold a gun to their head and make them do it? Uh, and then the question became, okay, what happens if we offer a tax break, which was Justice Barrett's, one of Justice Barrett's hypotheticals. Okay, we'll give you a tax break if you agree to consent to general, pers general personal jurisdiction in this case. Um, and then is this a consent at all? Justice Kagan gave an example of you'd sign on the blue paper, you'd sign on the pink paper. If you signed on the one, you consented. If you signed on the other, you didn't, but then you don't get to do business there and so forth. But the question then she raised is they didn't actually consent. It isn't actually there to which the plaintiff responds, hold it. It's in the law and ignorance of the law is no defense. So you're stuck. So why would Pennsylvania want to do this? Many states have in their constitutions, Indiana certainly does. I'm not, I don't think Illinois does, but Indiana certainly does. And we've talked about that in, uh, in cases. What are called open courts provisions of their state constitutions. And so they want to basically open their courthouse doors to everybody. Well, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court doesn't agree with that, it seems. And neither does Pennsylvania, because they didn't file an amicus brief in support of their interest here. In fact, no state filed an amicus brief in support of the plaintiffs in this case. Virginia filed an amicus brief and said, no, no, we have an interest in this case. Virginia, uh, Norfolk Southern is located here. Uh, they've since moved to Georgia, but at the time they were located in, uh, in Virginia. And you can, you should, you have to, we have the interest in this case. This is where the person was injured in Virginia and Ohio. You got to sue here, which led Justice Gorsuch. He's done this a couple times. Why'd you file there? He's done this in other cases too. Why'd you file there? I didn't get the answer, the truth. The truth is they filed not in Pennsylvania. They filed in Philadelphia, which is a, this is an asbestos case. And they wanted to file in a case in a jurisdiction, Pennsylvania, or sorry, Philadelphia, along with Houston, Madison County, Illinois, and Oakland, California are, that's where you file uh, these cases. Right. This is, uh, right. the, the, those are the hotbeds for these things. Uh, and, and, and so, so that's what, that's, what's really going on here. Uh, he said, well, this is where his lawyers are located. Yeah, yeah, that's the reason why his lawyers are located there. Uh, okay, I mean, I, I don't begrudge them that. That's fine. There's some places that are, uh, as somebody, I think, said, one person's hellhole is another person's nirvana. Uh, and that's true. Uh, but are you really subject to jurisdiction there? So now we come to the Dormant Commerce Clause issue. Uh, keep in mind, Gorsuch and Thomas, not a fan of the Dormant Commerce Clause. They don't think that's a thing. They, they're, not, they're not down with that. Kavanaugh, big fan. He's like, hold it. How can you restrict their, how can you put a burden on out-of-state folks to do business there? And what puts a real wrinkle on it in this case is, as a railroad, they are required to do business in Pennsylvania. They can't just pull up stakes and leave. Now, Justice uh, Sotomayor, for her part, said, you guys have more railroad in Pennsylvania than any other state. How are you not at home in Pennsylvania? Um you, yes, you incorporated in Dell and Virginia, and that's where you're located, your headquarters is, but you don't have more business there. You do more business, employ more people, have more miles of track than any other state, and it's in Pennsylvania. But 
they, this this idea that they're required to do business there does this make a, a unique case, or is the or is the the court just going to look past that and say, you know, let's just decide the issue? And there's another case that's pending. It's in Georgia. The Georgia Supreme Court came to the opposite conclusion in a tire case. That case has been consolidated, as I understand it, but it isn't really up to the. It's very strange where it sits, but it's there. The the other issue is this dormant commerce clause issue. The court allowed Steve. Uh, there was an amicus brief filed by Steve Sachs, who's a law professor at Duke, I believe, and he's an originalist type. And his view is yes. The 14th Amendment, the original understanding of the 14th Amendment doesn't allow or allows for these types of statutes, but the Dormer's Commerce Clause doesn't. So, yes, you, you but that isn't part of the question presented. Uh, so it's they the court ordered the parties to be prepared to are to talk about Sachs's brief and his brief came up a little bit specifically, but the concepts in it came up a lot. Um, he asked for for a divided argument to be able to to argue. Uh, that was denied, but they the parties were told to be ready to discuss Sachs's brief, which is really cool that they they had another person with a different view, and that may be a reason to have allowed him to talk. Um, a couple of recommendations if you're interested further in this case, the Federalist Society has a pod, podcast that discusses the oral argument that's excellent. And apropos of what I just mentioned, the divided argument podcast. Uh, has an excellent, uh, that's on Spotify, uh, with Dan Epps and, uh, and Will Bode has an excellent discussion as part in, in parts of two episodes about this case. They went on and on and on and on about this case. Uh, very interesting, their discussion. Uh, so if you're really, this is a very important case. It's, it, it really is going to test where, how you do originalism. It's going to test where you do, how you do, or if you do Dormant Commerce Clause. It's, it's going to be a very interesting way, very strange lineup is likely to occur if, if the oral argument is any indication, uh, which we hope it is because that's what we do on this show. Uh, so uh, a really, really, if you're in civil litigation, you should listen to this case. It's, it's a really important one uh, and very interesting with layers upon layers of issues. I have hardly done it justice, but that gives you an idea of the depth of the issues. Dan, uh, any further thoughts? So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with segment three of uh, the Podium and Panel podcast. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 126 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And in a matter of first impression, the Indiana Court of Appeals will decide whether a surety company owes a duty of good faith and fair dealing to the obligee on the bond on a surety bond and is thus subject to bad faith damages like those to which an insurer is subject under Erie Insurance versus Hickman, the 1993 Indiana Supreme Court case that deals with bad, just the seminal case on bad faith in Indiana. 
The obligee contends that under the Indiana Insurance Code, sureties are a type of insurance, while the insurer relies in part on an Indiana Supreme Court precedent that predates the code that draws a distinction between suretyship and insurance. The case, which was argued Monday of last week, is Posterity Scholar House versus FCCI Insurance. The court described the case thusly. Posterity House LP contracted with a general contractor to perform work on a construction project. As required by their contract, the general contractor obtained surety bonds from FCCI Insurance Company. When the general contractor allegedly failed to perform under the construction contract, Posterity filed bond claims and FCCI or with FCCI, demanding that FCCI perform the, ins- the general contractor's obligations. Posterity later filed suit against FCCI, claiming it handled Posterity's bond claims in bad faith. The trial court entered summary judgment in favor of FCCI, finding it, owed, it did not owe Posterity a duty of good faith and fair dealing under Indiana law. Posterity appeals. A surety bond acts like a contract between three parties, the surety, in this case FCCI, the obligee, Posterity, and the principal, the general contractor. As a matter of first impression under Indiana law, this case asks whether the surety owes the obligee a duty of good faith and fair dealing, and if so, whether the breach of the duty gives rise to a cause of action in tort. Substantial issues of public policy are implicated here. Dan, tell us about the oral argument. Thank you, Pat, and apologies on the last segment. I don't know what's going on, but I'm remote. Uh, as Pat mentioned, this is a surety case, and so I want to give a little bit of background on surety because they are uh, there are significant differences between traditional insurance and surety ship. As Pat mentioned, the surety bond is a written document that guarantees the performance of the obligations of one party, the principal, to another party, the obligee. The surety, through its bond, provides a guarantee to the obligee that the principal will, will fulfill its obligations. And it's really a... a, a an interesting process. Uh, the surety bond is a three-party contract, as Pat mentioned. The as was argued at oral argument by the uh, FCCI's counsel, no losses are expected. If you look at combined ratios for these policies, they're, they're usually very low uh, compared to other lines of business because of the nature of them. They're really just a a a, a stopgap. Um, the, the premium is the fee for the extension of credit and the principal retains economic risk through an indemnity agreement with the surety. And insurance, of course, as we know, it's a two-party contract. You expect losses. The premium's based on actuarial likelihood of loss, and the insurance company assumes economic risk in that transaction. In this case, an indemnity is the principal's promise to pay the surety for any loss it sustains by virtue of having written bonds on behalf of the principal. The applications uh, of that uh, indemnity are single or specific indemnity for a particular bond, and there's a general agreement of indemnity, which is a blanket agreement that covers all bonds written for the principal from the date of the agreement. There's the concept of exoneration. It becomes the right of the surety to force the principal to perform its obligations if the surety is called on to respond. The principal's resources should be ex- exhausted first, and there's joint and several liability of all indemnitors. They hold a responsibility to make the surety whole in the event of default. Uh, Each party is equally liable for the entire obligation and all principals hold a duty to make the surety whole. In this case, there was a lot of reference to a case out of California, Kate's Construction Inc. versus Talbot Partners, uh, which really does a a nice job of distinguishing uh, the two. And it it sets out kind of the rules of surety and again, why uh, the argument here is for FCCI is that it's a different type of contract 
even though it's under the insurance code. And what the Cates court said is a surety is, quote, one who promises to answer for the debt default or miscarriage of another or hypothecates property and security. Therefore, quote, a surety bond is a written instrument executed by the principal and surety in which the surety agrees to answer for the debt default or miscarriage of the principal. Um, they, they talk about uh, uh, in California, the covenant of good faith and fair dealings implicit in every contract. Um, and that there's uh, 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 the, the uh, uh, one exception to the general rule of, of uh, the, the fact that the covenant of good faith and fair dealings contract term compensation for its breach almost has almost been limited to contracts rather than tort remedies. The one exception in California to the general rule is tort remedies are available for a breach of the covenant in cases involving insurance policies. Um, the uh, California, the Cates course, and I think this is important for this case, it, said, it, it, it talked about this uh, similar type of fact where, the, where, where there was a, a duty of, of uh, good faith uh, and fair dealing that was imposed upon uh, the insurance, the surety. Uh, what they said was, although surety is included within the insurance code as a class of insurance, it long has been settled that the parties and surety agreements Arrangements have certain rights and defenses that do not attend the typical insurance relationship. For instance, an insurer generally has no right of subrogation against the insured for covered losses, even if the insurer's negligence contributed to such losses. A surety, however, is entitled to reimbursement from its principles for amounts paid to the obligee upon the principal's default. So that's kind of a lot of setup because I think it's important to realize that these are uh, just like warranties in some cases are a part of the insurance code, but they're treated differently. The, the, the reality is, is they have indemnity provisions. They're, they're a form of risk transfer to an extent. And so these insurance codes kind of are an umbrella for all of it because where else would it go? Um, and in the construction cases, uh, one of the reasons these are important, and, and we're dealing with this right now with, with, with the client, is that you only have certain capacity to have surety bonds to be able to bid on projects, especially the public works projects. That was one of the arguments of uh, the, uh, the, the principal here is that public works projects, uh, what happens is, is they ask you what your capacity for bonding is. And if you've got a lot of liens or a lot of disputes under your surety bonds, you lose the capacity to do further projects. And that's the problem. So you can't bid or you're not gonna get public projects, you're probably not, not gonna get any private projects as well. Uh, way back in my early days uh, of, of litigating and, and my days at Lord Vistle, one of our clients was a small general contractor. Uh, he was always in these uh, situations where uh, he had disputes and issues uh, at, at the tail end of projects about change orders and things. And he was always trying to settle these cases because if he didn't, then he's not going to have any more cases and his business was going to go out of business. So this, uh, uh, as Pat said, it's a case of first impression in Indiana. There's not a lot of case, not a lot of, uh, there's maybe nine or 10 case, uh, courts that have found uh, this duty of, of good faith and surety bonds. Uh, there's a dispute about if there were any more. There were some questions from the bench. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, the appellant here, the principal, the posterity scholar, uh, course, uh, when the when the bench uh, actually came on the oral argument about two minutes and twenty seconds, the um, uh, 
the the uh, first question out of the box was why even if the legislature included sureties uh, as insurers under the Indian Insurance Code, uh, there's a lot of common law, as Pat said, there's the Hickman case and some other cases that uh, the parties were arguing what, what propositions they stood for uh, in terms of, of uh, uh, this good faith. Um, the appellant attorney, he just kept refer com coming back to, uh, when, when he was pressed on different points, he just kept saying, Hickman applies to insurance, surety bonds are an, an insurance line, therefore uh, the uh, duties of good faith uh, and the bad faith laws apply in this case. Uh, one of the one of the things that was a bit murky in this case, and and I think the justices were pressing, is say that we do find uh, that bad faith applies. What exactly would, would be different here? Um, and I think one one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting, Pat, was on rebuttal. Uh, there was talk about uh, the actual contract here and the surety bond, where the principal had waived. Uh, all kinds of, uh, of damages and, and ability to pursue. And so I think some of the justices were saying, well, wait a second then, if you waived it contractually, now you're trying to back into it through uh, Hickman and through the, the fact that the legislature included surety amongst uh, lines of insurance. So but my sense from, from the oral arguments in, in this case, uh, a first impression is that uh, the, the, the principle's not going to, this case, I think, will get affirmed just because of some of the questioning. Although, as, as sometimes is the case, when we listen to these oral arguments and kind of try to assess Pat, uh, you know, when I listened to the, the appellants stand up for the first 20 minutes or whatever it was, he was getting hit pretty hard. And then I thought, well, they've got their minds made up. And then when, when, the, when the appellee stood up, uh, uh, the questions seem to be just as harsh, so it'll be interesting to see what the uh, Indiana Appellate Court does here. The, the Indiana Appellate Court's good at that. Yeah. They give, they give it to everybody. They do. Everybody, everybody gets it in that, in that court. So. All right. So with that, uh, we will go to our BI for COVID, and I think this week a couple of things. Uh, Pen a Pennsylvania Appellate Court came up with two different decisions, one for the insurer, one for the insured. Split the baby. We'll see uh, how that shakes out going forward. And then we forgot to cover this, but uh, the Supreme Court of the United States rejected a petition for certiorari um, in a BI coverage case from Maryland against Chubb. I think. It was, and, so, and no surprise. Again, we've said many times there was the the dust case, that uh, the dirt case in Louisiana went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's not going to involve in insurance uh, interpretation. Well, the dirt, oh, the dirt case. No, the dirt case was from. Well, it was from Florida. I know. The dirt, the, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. That was from that was from uh, that was from Florida. But yeah, yeah, they're not gonna they're not gonna they're not, they're not taking these cases. It's it's not gonna happen. So with respect to our prediction, sure to go wrong. Dan is 188 and a half, 40 and a half, and 11. I'm 186 and a half, 42 and a half, and 11. So Dan has taken a commanding two case lead. Uh, there's a ton of cases that came out this week. Um, so we forgot to cover one last week, from episode 123, which was Butler Brothers versus HN Precision, which dealt with whether uh, uh, you have to disclose uh, or uh, the appellate court had, first of all, the appellate court had jurisdiction to consider the appeal 
um, notwithstanding that the court ordered the trial court ordered some of the case to the arbitration and then granted judgment on the remainder. Um, this is a case that dealt with whether they had to disclose certain information uh, during the uh, purchase of the property and whether they had a uh, or purchase of the business um, through the uh, uh, through a sale through bankruptcy. So uh, we got that one wrong. We thought that they had pled enough. They didn't. There were 18, I think 18, maybe 19. Illinois Supreme Court decisions last week. They're in a hurry. Several that we've discussed on this show. Yeah, they're in a hurry because hurry of the done turnover. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So the first of these we got right was Sheckler versus Auto Owners from episode 117, which is a case about whether the Dix versus Boy case, which finds that a tenant is a co-insured on a fire policy, if that extends to... Uh, the duty to defend and in a third party claim brought by the, uh, the party that the, uh, that auto owner sued. And the idea is the principle to take out of this case is that the duty to defend arises out of contract, not equity. And the Dix case is based on equity and this is based upon contract and no duty to defend. The second case we got right, uh, changing gears a little bit to the Illinois appellate court. Second district is Rockford versus Giles. The court held that there are three and only three um, uh, ways to toll the time to file a 1401 petition in Illinois, duress, fraudulent concealment, and uh, legal disability, none of which existed. This is the guy who moved to Colorado uh, and found out that his property had been sold uh, to deal with a tax lien, or in this case, they, they mowed his grass apparently like 20 times and sent him a bill. And he never paid it. And then they put the lien, then they foreclosed on the lien. They took his million dollar property. And so for $11,000, he loses a million, two, two properties worth like a million dollars. And sold it for 200,000. Uh, a bit harsh, but <laughs> they sold it for 230,000. Yeah. So seems seems a bit harsh. Um, but the, the court felt like, it, I think it felt like it had no other choice. It reversed the trial court that held. Uh, that there was, uh, there could be equitable tolling. Uh, this, the PLA will almost certainly be granted, whether it's, I'm sorry, will be filed, filed, filed. Whether it's granted or not is a different question. Uh, there's enough money here to make it worthwhile filing it. Uh, we got Walworth versus Mu Sigma. This is, if you recall, the case that, just, that Justice Lavin described as the reverse Bernie Madoff. The Supreme Court uh, called the plaintiff, which is the Ryan family, not liars, double liars, because not only did they, according to the Supreme Court, lie about in the contract, or not only did they lie about what they relied on, but they lied in a written document about it, which is really bad. So they were not taking, and they, the reliance clause was was enforceable, and they had to, and you're stuck with whatever you said you relied on and whatever you said you didn't rely on, and the the fiduciary duty argument, which was their big argument, that you know he still owed us a fiduciary. No, he owes a fiduciary generally, not to any one particular shareholder. He can screw you, uh, which he did, uh, it seems. And to the tune of what seems like, based on spending like hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, the, the business when he sold it was valued in the tens of millions, and now it's worth like a billion and a half. 
uh, and they had a 21% equi- interest in the uh, equitable interest in the business. So, whew, that's a big decision. Uh, they that was applying um, Delaware law, which brings us to uh, we got Chicago Sun Times versus Cook County Health and Hospital Systems wrong. We discussed this on episode 118. The appellate court um, held that the county has to produce records related to the year of a shooting and when it was reported. There was a dissent, I believe, from Justice Tice. It was Tice. Justice Tice dissent? Chief Justice Tice, no. She's like, you're making, yeah, you're you're Chief Justice Tice. Sorry, thank you. Uh, She said, you know, you're making them produce documents that don't exist. They, 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 you're making them create things. They don't have to create things. Uh, this doesn't violate HIPAA. It doesn't, it doesn't disclose anybody's information. It can be identified. But Justice Tice's point is they just can't create it. So there we are. Not surprising from her oral argument. Mora versus Jane and Plating. This is where our split got wider. This is the BIPA case. That... Say it again, Dan. I said not surprising from her oral, oral argument. She was asking a lot of questions about kind of those things in that uh, case. I think that's why we thought that the case was going to be uh, come out the other way. Yeah. Uh, then we split on Mora versus J&M Plating, which was a PIPA case where they held that when you collect biometric data, you have to have the, 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 the disclosure in place, and four years later is too late. Uh, we'll see if this case goes up to the, uh, to the, uh, you missed Ivy. To the Supreme Court. I missed Ivy. You're right. Uh, Ivy versus uh, this is another business case. This is Ivy versus TransUnion, which we discussed on, on episode 116. The new business rule is extremely alive and well. Uh, in other words, if you don't have the same business, a similar or at least a similar business showing similar profits, then you are out of luck. This was over the dissent of Justice Overstreet. Um, which brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong for this week. Uh, Dan Gibbons, this is getting reversed. Getting reversed. You agree? I agree. All right. Uh, Mallory, I haven't the foggiest. It's good because I, I have to look into the brain of Justice Barrett. Yeah. I. What do you think? I, th- I think it's going to be a, a closely divided case, and I have no idea either. I think we punt. <laughs> we'll punt. We'll punt on that one. And then Posterity, Posterity Scholar House versus FCCI, that'll be affirmed. Affirmed for sure. Okay. Dan, uh, why don't you tell us about the rule of the week? Sure. And this is uh, it's not really a, exactly a rule, but we thought we would talk about it. Uh, and it deals with investiture uh, of justices, both at the Illinois Supreme Court and the Supreme Court of the United States and everywhere else. Last week, Illinois Appellate yeah. Justice Joy Cunningham, a good friend of uh, mine, she's a past president, president of the Chicago Bar Association. She was sworn in to replace the retiring Justice Ann Burke. Investiture is the formal process of administering the oath and happens at the United States Supreme Court as well. Uh, for those that pay any attention to the Supreme Court, uh, for example, uh, they're sworn in, but then they have an investiture oftentimes at the White House. And Amy Coney Barrett was sworn in. Um, and so that's the, uh, that's the rule of the week. And I appear to have lost Pat, so I don't know if Pat will come back. Uh, but with that, we bid you 
ado. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.